warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our programme. the real britannia podcast the very british podcast about very british movies with just a hint of professionalism good morning it's we think the seventh in our hammer sequence with me because it's a hammer movie is stephen good morning morning mate uh, glad to be here and glad to have a hint of professionalism because we've um, snatched a body to join us <laughs> and that body we've snatched back by popular demand is mark hello mate Hey, hey, yeah, it's my popular demand, let's be honest. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. I'm a legend in my own mind, yes. In your own bath time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, great to be back, looking forward to this. I love a bit of Hammer, so, you know. Yeah. We'll do, we'll do. I mean, this one, I'd completely forgotten this one. I'd watched it recently in the last five years, but couldn't remember any of this at all. Mark, you've probably reviewed it in the last two years on your show. Yeah, yeah. I find this one quite memorable for a couple of specific scenes, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, whereas uh, there's at least one other Frankenstein, which is totally unmemorable. Maybe two, okay. actually. But <laughs> others are really good. It's a very up and down series. They're either re- tend to be really good or poor. Okay. So it's, it's the second of seven, I think this is. Mm. Um, when I was checking through some bits this morning. Stephen, how many times have you seen this one, mate? Oh, I think maybe three four times and not seen it as, as much as some of the others i don't think it's, it's an odd one, one. it is a bit it's uh, it's like you say i think i've forgotten the number of times i've seen it and interchanged it with some other ones mm. but i think this one it, obviously this is where they they realize that they could turn a franchise out of it rather than just have it as a single film previously and i think it's also one where there's been a realization that the focal point of the Frankenstein films can be Frankenstein and not the monster. Yeah. Um, that seems to be a bit of a, a theme as well, which cements Cushion as has been the archetypal Frankenstein then. Absolutely. Even though he was sentenced to death at the end of the last one, he does a yeah. Bobby Ewing. It was all a dream in the shower. That's how I thought they were going to get around it. Yeah, but, he's he's uh, he's proper alpha. I'd really like Cushioning as a Frankenstein generally in the series. He's a proper alpha male, and he always thinks his way out of stuff. Mostly, mostly. Sometimes yeah. he just can't get out of it. But uh, this, yeah, it was great. Uh, interesting in their first sequel, uh, and they didn't really toy with sequels for a while, quite a while after this. But yeah, this, yeah, it was quite quickly after the first one as well yes yeah we've only got a couple of years between them it's 1958 let's play the trailer we'll be back after this in the year 1860 i baron frankenstein 
was sentenced to death on the guillotine. Why? Why had the world condemned me? Because I was the first man to create another living being. The first unnatural man. But because his brain was affected, because he could not control his animal instincts, he was hunted down and brutally murdered. But I have escaped the guillotine and I shall avenge the death of my creation. born yet. You will witness scenes never before seen on a motion picture screen. You will see Frankenstein take the eyes of one man, the brain of another. You will see lifeless hands begin to move. You will see a man turn into the world's most terrifying monster. Avenger Frankenstein, released in the UK in 1958, starring, of course, Peter Cushing. We've got Francis Matthews, Eunice Gason, Michael Gwynn, John Welsh, Lionel Jeffries is in there, and Michael Ripper, as well as some other famous faces that Stephen's going to be talking to us about a little later in the Crypt of Fame. The plot, having escaped execution and assumed an alias, Baron Frankenstein transplants his deformed underling's brain into a perfect body but the effectiveness of the process and the secret of his identity soon begin to unravel. I was surprised just how great the plot to this one actually is and how creepy and not necessarily gory, but horrific as a, as a traditional horror film, this really works. Yeah, it definitely does. Uh, there are, some, well, we'll get to it as we talk about various scenes, but there's at least two scenes that are, I, I saw this as a, I don't know, eight, nine-year-old. Uh, and though there's two things in it that always stuck with me, um, re- two very strong, powerful things, both involving the creature. Uh, and in fact, you could argue there's a third as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I I really like this sequel. Stephen, just generally, mate, as an, as an overview before we go into a bit of detail. Yeah, I think that with the plot, it definitely is creative and uh, more you know strong than people give it credit for. Mm. Um, certainly, certainly a lot more inventive than um, Frankenstein's decision to give himself a different name. Um, <laughs> the film, I was going to mention that. He's, he's, start, he's you know not to give not to give any spoilers away, but he, he you know he starts off the film by giving himself the 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 name of. of Dr. Stein, and then when he decides he needs to change his name at the end, he changes it to Dr. Frank. Oh, so, um, so there's Dr. Dr. N is next, right? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, so he's a bit limited in in you know in his own imagination that way. But uh, yes, definitely the the plot is a lot stronger, and certainly with it being uh, entirely uh, made up separate to anything to do with the original uh, narrative from the book, they've expanded out of that, and seemingly from what I've read, it was devised it in quite a, a quick uh, a quick order as well because um it was it was taken over to the states was the uh the film um as a as a project and advertised around and hawked when people bought it and then he came back and told somebody they had six weeks to to write <laughs> write the script uh, for a film they didn't even know was existing so considering that it shows that the pressure worked because it, it does have some outstanding scenes like max said and just a, generally it's a, a creative move on from what was the the basic story before yeah yeah i have to say the title always makes me laugh because the film is not about the revenge of frankenstein at all. No, but no he has that line right at the beginning you know i want my revenge and he's like no <laughs> you don't you clearly don't want you any don't. revenge you just want to go do some work um but they i think they picked the title i suspect they picked the title before they actually wrote the script and they had to chew on in the well, revenge element i suspect well what they did Stephen was quite right that the um need for a sequel was really apparent based on the success of the first one so what they did they registered the title the blood of dracula as the next one yeah and what they did they created some mock-up posters featuring christopher lee optimistically as the monster yeah uh which obviously didn't quite work out and then when <laughs> what's his name uh james carreras when he was asked, you know, how on earth can you make a sequel to The Curse of Frankenstein? You know, the, the last one ended with Mr., with Peter Cushing going to the guillotine. His reply was, oh, we'll just sew the head back on again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was intended to happen pretty much as soon as the first one finished. But um, and as Stephen said, this was rattled out pretty quickly because it was peddled over in America, mate, wasn't it, as you say? And uh, it was like a case of, right, oh, we've sold this now. We need to do something pretty sharp. Yeah. Yeah. I forgotten how they got around this whole guillotine bit. And it is quite inventive, actually, because it's all to do with the, the, the priest and he's described as a hunchback dwarf. I think he's billed as dwarf, this poor guy. Yeah, yeah. Call the dwarf. Yeah. Does he appear in the other one, the previous one? No, no. This is wholesale. He appeared at the, the uh, you know, the execution. It yeah. was funny. It was so obviously he really shouldn't be there. And like no one was saying anything. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bit shoehorned in this whole thing. Yeah. Now they'd obviously paid off the executioner and uh, just did the priest in. Right. And uh, that was it. But then that leads to a brilliant little sequence with two characters. One of the highlights of this for me is is a, you would you would never put these two together as a comic duo, would you? Michael Ripper and Lionel Jeffries. Yeah, totally works. Totally <laughs> works. They feel like uh, they could be a couple. Uh, they it made me think of Oliver this bit. You know, they wouldn't be a miss in the in with Nancy and Bill Sykes, would they? These two and Fagin making their living as are they just grave robbers or are they just sort of ne'er do wells? Well, the thing is, one was you know. Michael Rippers thought, I did six months last time, but I don't want to do it again. So he was obviously kind of trying to keep out of trouble, but not that hard. So just a couple of dodgy geezers, really. 
And the bit that made me laugh, I mean, they're digging up the body of the priest, who obviously has been... But you say they, you say they. Oh, sorry, Michael Ripper. Michael Ripper gets, you know, he's he's there to do the donkey work, obviously, out of this this partnership. Yeah, like, oh, how's he get him? He says, oh, you know, uh, well, I'll do it all myself. I'll have the whole 10 miles. He says, you said it was six. He goes, oh, did I? Uh, It's 10 now. (laughs) Uh, which is now just enough to get Michael Ripper involved in a bit of grave robbing. There's a great line when they open up the coffin and Lionel Jeffries looks down and goes, oh, that'll do really well. He said, uh, head might be a bit of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I did like the the wigs. Certainly Michael Ripper's wig. Oh, Ripper's enough, wig was amazing. <laughs> it and, was and, good. Yeah, and, yeah the, the bit that got me, I mean, I've watched, I had to watch this scene again this morning because I couldn't remember how Lionel Jeffries died. He actually dies of a heart attack, doesn't he, when he sees the hunchback? Yeah, yeah he pegs yeah. out. And falls backwards into the grave. Yeah. <laughs> Andy. Conven- conveniently, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is why I never did graves. You never know, right? You never know what you find. <laughs> You're asking for trouble there. <laughs> so the basis of the plot is obviously Frankenstein has to assume this new identity. Which, as Stephen said, isn't very creative. He's just Dr. Stein. Doesn't he introduce himself to these two grave robbers as well? Like, doesn't he say, I'm Baron Frankenstein? He says he's Frankenstein to them. I'm sure he does. Yeah, Yeah. why would you do that? Oh, isn't that what gives him the heart attack? He says, I'm Frank. No, it's Peter Cushing saying, I'm Baron Frankenstein that gives Lionel Jeffries the heart attack. Yeah, still not a good idea, though, is it? Tell two dodgy blokes who you are. Then again, if it has that power to kill people, we can use it yeah. all the time. Yeah, <laughs> that would be handy. <laughs> Just saying the name of people and they drop dead. Um, <laughs> so with this new identity, he travels off to Germany. Um, yeah. And we sort of fast forward, don't we, about two or three years. And he's led this sort of fairly secretive life, you know, because he doesn't become part of, is it like the medical council or something? He's in the town yes. and they can't, Start mo- they don't welcome him at all and they start moaning because he's got a successful practice he's built up a success- and, and uh, they're like oh we got- should invite him now you know it's like that yeah. and he also like does a lot of charity work because he's the patron of the the hospital for the unfortunates or the you know the the poor isn't he yeah so he's not well yeah, liked. difficulty is with that bit though is it's difficult to work out from this and the previous film with the charity work for the poor how mm. much of that is genuine altruism or mm-hmm. how much of it is um getting access to the body parts that he wants it is actually, i don't yeah, think that i think it's a bit a bit vague no, yes i think it's a bit no question about it. it's nothing to do with altruism at all mate. <laughs> he needs limbs basically <laughs> because there's people in there that tattooed could be, ones yeah <laughs> people could have been discharged weeks previously and he's keeping them there because he's thinking that arm looks okay i might have that you know and, and that's yeah. basically what he does because there's the guy with the tattoo, isn't it? And it's like that arm's got. Yeah. To come. Um, yeah, there's nothing and wrong the with it. And the guy who's the guy who's a dancer, the guy who's a dancer who, who you know decides you know don't care if that's his um, livelihood, he's gonna have his leg because he wants. His... <laughs> it's a good. One. <laughs> yeah, why not? And um, Francis Matthews turns up as someone called uh, Cleve, isn't it? Uh, he's on the council, isn't he? He's on this medicine. Yeah. 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 Um, and pretty much instantly recognises him for who he is. Yeah, and he wants he wants knowledge yeah. and like old uh, the old Baron, uh, the old Frankenstein sitting eating his like dinner. 
cool as a total cucumber as this bloke. And then he says, yeah, that's me. Uh, and again, I really like that. There is a through line through these films that Frankenstein is a total alpha now. Yeah. Does not care. Does says what he loves. And it's, and it's even, it gets better and better through the films. <laughs> the way he does it. But he does this does it here you know he's so totally cool tells people exactly what he thinks of them he's totally not phased by authority uh, uh you know any of that but there's no sort you, of... i'm just gonna say that the, the the francis Matthews character uh, um coming to him and then um you know he subsequently helps him with his experiments particularly the first uh bit of uh, involving um, you know, um, putting somebody else's arm, uh, move, you know, taking somebody's arm off and transferring it and stuff. Um, you do realise that the, the the character name is Hans Cleave. Wow. Yes. Obviously, as in Cleave. Cho- cho- chopping up, <laughs> chopping up bodies. Cleave, yes. Mr. Yeah. Bloodkill or something like that. <laughs> deliberate, Hans Hans Cleave. I, I I don't know, but. It, uh, and when I, I I heard it on screen straight away, I went, oh, are there going to be puns all the way through? This would be great. But no, it seems like that was the only one, unfortunately. We'll watch out for the sequels, mate. See if it carries on. See if it's something they've sneaked in. We've never noticed before. Well, there's there's definitely a hand being sewn on in one of them. That's for sure. OK. OK, we'll look out for that one. There's this bloody great scene this marvelous scene of special the special effects team on this have gone overboard you, you've got to agree on that guys yeah, that, yeah great lab yeah. this good work uh, yeah the makeup throughout is marvelous um the lab as you say that they're, they're reusing a lot of the sets from dracula which attracted a bit of criticism at the time but their argument was we're creating a brand we're creating this gothic feel and it it works you don't notice that they're dracula's set some of these um and as for the special effects does anyone just want to talk us through this thing with the eyes in the jar please because it was just hilarious but wonderful at the same time yeah well it's got it's got eyes in a jar on a stick kind of thing right and he's demonstrating the hands and he's saying look it follows you around the room and then he does the same with a hand in a jar um Mm. Um, what's he do? Does he apply heat or something? I can't remember now. Uh, but he makes the, he, the flame. He, he, that's it. Yeah. Yes, using the flame to to say, well, the the eyes will follow the the flame because that's something primordial that we, you know, because you recognise it as being a, um, a a risk. So they they'll keep an eye on, literally keep an eye on it and and watch it as it moves, uh, backwards and forwards. Um, but they'll then recognise because it's attached by a. Uh, from one tank to another uh, it feels the hand is is part of its body so when you put the flame near the hand that the eyes will will see that the flame is near the hand and try to try to retract the hand um so it's showing that there's a connection between the two but also there's this primordial reaction to yeah it's not not necessarily uh attached Leaves the brain, does it? It's more like a reflex that bypasses yeah. the brain. That's it, yeah, it's yeah. kind of interesting. And also, we see his creature, his coming creature, which is quite amazing shot. Uh, that's what um, uh, a, quite a memorable shot of the creature. I'd say more memorable than Christopher Lee's um, sort of when we see him the first time. In some ways, it's just so well lit and um, oh, it's, it's imposing. Tank, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like hands uh, from the feet upwards, doesn't it? And then you yeah. See- all the tubes and things yeah 
um, <laughs> there's a part where they do the brain transplant because basically the plot is Chris, um, Peter Cushing is going to reward the dwarf hunchback. I keep calling that. He hasn't got a name, unfortunately. Carl. Carl is called Carl. It's Carl, is it? Um, yeah, I have to also mention, for some reason, uh, Frankenstein's got a chimpanzee. Ah, there yeah. is a reason. He does explain. He says he was using, he was trying, you know, try, he, he said, for example, I put the brain of a frog in a lizard, uh, and the lizard tried to hop, which a lizard can't do. And, you know, he says there's some retention of the brain's original location within the book. You know, they make that point, right? Which, make, which plays out later, which, which comes back later as part of the plot, yeah. Definitely. It's the orangutan's brain that goes into the chimp, isn't yeah. it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then no one notices at first, but the they're feeding the chimp lumps of raw meat too. But that gets a little talked about later. There yes. is yeah. a bit of that going on. And Carl's Carl's quite a sort of pathetic character. I don't know this actor from anything else, but I thought it was quite effective as Carl. Um It was great. I thought because he actually had like um dialogue, which yeah. totally sets him apart from the Christopher Lee version he can emote in different ways. Whereas Christopher Lee was relying on, you know, body language and eyes and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this guy comes up with some really sort of heartrending speeches at one point, doesn't he? You can feel the agony through his, through the speeches that he makes and the pain that he's going through. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's great. It's a, a really great performance actually. Yeah. yeah. I'm, yeah. Um, I'm talking about Carl, not, um, the sorry. Preacher. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, but Carl, I think he's really good too, actually. Uh, it's not an actor I haven't seen in much else. He's called Oscar Quittack. I just looked it up. He's a British stage actor, but he, he's a little fella, um, and he what? And he's kind of full of pathos uh, before he gets his brain transplanted into Michael Gwynn, right? Yeah. Do we know him from anything else? No, not no. at all. <laughs> and I think, it, unfortunately, I do think his um, that. Is, I don't know whether it was cut from the film or cut from the, the script or whatever, but I think they they set up a little bit um, with regards to the, the heroine in this film uh, or the love interest that the, yeah. could it have exploited a bit more. I mean, it was kind of still there in a bit, but it certainly wasn't exploited as much as I think it could have been as a plot point um, that, you know, he, he meets her in his deformed state and... Um, and then subsequently, when he's got the body he wants, he, he could have then pursued that more, or there could be more of a link on that, which um, unfortunately didn't transpire in the film, um, which maybe would have been one of the few things that might have um, improved it. But certainly, the you're absolutely right, Mark, about the, the quality of the performance there. He really does put across this individual who is tortured, and like Frankenstein says himself, that you know, there's a, a, an intelligent brain in there that's that's worth um, respecting and uh, making use out of. But it's the body that's the problem, rather than other people who are dismissing him as because his body's no use to think his brain isn't either. Yeah, there's some good stuff. Uh, Jimmy Sangster did a really good script too. He did some interesting stuff, and he does do setups very nicely that naturally that lead to things like, for example, Han says, "Well, are you sure? Are the, is the brain possibly a cause of?" you know uh, his hunchback is a you know or you know his deformity is and um Frankenstein's not that you know it, it could mm. be but i don't think it is kind of thing um and um 
so that gets set up for a bit later as well uh but thanks is a pretty good script writer for this kind of material that's for sure yeah yeah certainly in six weeks yeah amazing right amazing (laughs) yeah carl's performance is quite subtle because there's that bit where he first meets margaret and she says i I went to shake his hand and didn't realize and he he does he gives her a little bit of a look but as he turns away from her you know he he reacts really well to what's going on around him it was an interesting part i'm just going to read this out to you guys i found when i was doing a bit of research this morning talking about the special effects and the actual transplant of the brain because we see a brain in a couple of scenes don't we because there's a bit at the end where the brain's used as well basically what they used was a sheep's brain it was actually a sheep it wasn't special effects it was a real sheep's brain right after they you know transplanted it into the first the first transplant they were going to do it was going to be used again in the following day's shoot as a double for the baron's brain right yeah somebody forgot to put it in the fridge Francis Matthews remembered they left it out all night in this glass pot thing and it was alive. It was full of maggots and the crew were all holding their noses. Instead of the operation, we filmed a few close-ups of Peter and me while they got a new sheep's brain. It took them quite a while before they got one. They had to order it in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I better order it from Sainsbury's. <laughs> I was going to say, not something that's always on the counter, I'm assuming. Yeah. Uh, talking to Margaret, Eunice Gason. Yes, whoa. Do you recognise her? What's she most known Yeah, for? yeah. First Bond girl. First Bond so girl. Sylvia be a trend. Yeah. I think she was the only Bond mm. girl that appeared in two movies right up until the last two. I the think. same character, yeah. Yes, yeah. as the same character, yes, yes. Yeah, because yeah, Maud Adams did appear as Karamanka's girlfriend and yeah. Octopussy, right? So there was that. But yeah, so, and apparently back in the day, there was talk of her becoming his wife in this franchise, which is ridiculous thinking back. And she'd be like Mrs. James Bond and then also do Spy Adventures. But that all got disappeared. But she was pretty effective in Doctor No and uh, From Russia With Love. Yeah. yeah, she's great in this as well. You yeah, know. yeah. Wasn't she the original, wasn't she originally going to be cast as, as Money Penny? I think she I, was. Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know. That. She would have been a good money penny, but I think Lois Maxwell's a great penny money. money yeah. Penny money. Penny <laughs> money. I, I sometimes I call her funny fanny. But <laughs> yeah, that's, um, Abbott, wasn't it? That's Basled and Bond. Um, <laughs> did you know round about this sort of time because of the su- success of these two Frankenstein movies, Hammer dabbled in their first tv venture they were going to do a tv series called the adventures of baron frankenstein or something like this have you heard this i mm. thought it was way later than this i didn't realize it was this early i'd heard of it it was called tales of frankenstein early in 58 a 26 minute pilot episode was shot in the states hammer's first abortive attempt to produce a television series listen to this the the plot lines no wonder this didn't take off right 26 half-hour installments were proposed, 13 in Hollywood, 13 to be filmed at Bray. Jimmy Sangster was approached for story ideas. Listen to this. Now, you say this guy's a great scriptwriter. Listen to some of these <laughs> wacky things he came up with. <laughs> because there's obviously only so many like creatures and monsters you can make before people get fed up with the plot, right? He was approached for story ideas and came up with eight single-line scenarios. Okay, here we go. These are the punchlines for the scenarios for some of them. He has a set two with zombies. He dabbles in voodoo and gets himself a big black assistant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, His dabblings in time factors turn people into primeval slime. 
All right, I, I've got to stop you here. This sounds like Kolchak. All right. <laughs> it's like 15 years later. It really does. It's mad. Oh, I'd watch it. I'd definitely watch this. I think they filmed the pilot. I think it was Anton Diffring was playing the Baron, but nothing ever came of it. It was just this really ambitious project um, that probably didn't see the light of day until like Hammer House of Horror was like the TV sort of thing. They did yeah, this. well, there was a Hammer series before Hammer House Horror, which was oh the one with the whistling. Uh, oh, was it? Oh, Dennis Waterman was in the pilot. Oh, oh, okay. It's something like it, Towers of the Unknown or something like that. Was a, I think a co-production with Hammer and and another an american company i could be wrong let me google it while you while you tell okay. anyway so we, we get new carl now in this new body yes played superbly by michael Gwynn. yeah uh, um and as, as i said earlier because th- this guy has actually got dialogue it, it puts a whole new dynamic on the relationship i think between the monster and, and, the, and the baron or, or dr frank is he frank or is he dr stein he's dr stein i see when i'm getting stein at the moment yeah <laughs> Because Dr. Frank is a completely different person. No resemblance. <laughs> Michael Gwynn. And I was I was looking at this. I, I know that man. I, I know him. The the most famous role that Michael Gwynn ever did was a TV performance. And he's only in this TV show for about 10 minutes. Yep. You, you I know, know him. I know him. Uh, Stephen, do you, uh, do, you, do you know who we're on about? I don't know. He was, was it Lord Melbury? Old Melbury, that's Melbury, that is. Melbury, yes. Faulty Towers. Oh, is that Faulty Towers? Yes. Yes, because yes, he because Basil Faulty asked him for his like his first name. He said, "Well, I only use Melbury. I'm a lord, you know that one." And Basil's fawning all over him, but he turns out to be a con man. That's him. That's Michael Gwynn. Often played um, military types. Yeah, you can see him as an officer in all sorts of things. Sorry. Yeah, he was. I'm sure. Have you? Do you remember the Some Mothers Do Have them? episode with the raf reunion yep i'm yep. sure he's like the the commander or the squadron leader or something in that as well you know he's not so i've not seen him in much but he always comes you know it's very effective lord yeah. is a great comic turn for example yeah. everybody remembers it as well and he's only on screen for yeah, yeah. or so you know this is a great cast, yeah, because we've got Michael Ripper, we've got Lionel Jeffries, Eunice Gason. There's lots of people to talk about that it's not all centred around Peter Cushing in this movie, is it? No, no. Um, there's there's some really interesting stuff going on. I mean, Peter Cushing really centres it because it's Cushing, right? He just he, he drives this film. They really had a star with Peter Cushing um, and they used him well. And yeah. um, he just made the material really work. Even if it was Toshi... Uh, and I don't think this one is, but there's some really tosh kind of movies he's in, but he elevates it. There's certain actors that make, uh, just make scripts work, whatever. And they're usually high energy. Now, Cushion isn't high energy, but he's intense. Oh, maybe he's high energy. Uh, but yeah, Cushion was really good in this. Okay, yeah, you're no, mm, sorry. Your point, you, you know, you're saying about, you know, he's, he's, the main focal point and, and be, there are significant contributions from other people in this because in curse of frankenstein apart from the bits where he's been um portrayed by somebody younger melvin it is significant yeah melvin Hayes. it is significant that there's only a small part of it where it's not actually uh cushing on screen um yeah. otherwise and there's a small part with obviously uh christopher lee in the woods but um mm. apart from that it pretty much is 
cushion in in every scene. Uh, yeah. Whereas this, the, there are a, a couple of scenes almost in a row where 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 cushion is is actually absent. You know. Yeah, uh, I mean it's just Francis Matthews. The monster is much more significant in the final act in terms of us seeing him, whereas in the first film it was a lot more um, of Frankenstein wandering around looking for the monster in, in randomly in the woods, if I remember right. Randomly, yeah. Um, I can imagine he had a lot of fun doing this as well because he gets a chance to wear a few wigs and moustaches and, you know, even the makeup when he's the, the body he's created is done in his own image, isn't it? It took me a while to realise that was him at first because the makeup is so yes. with the scars on the face and all of that. And it's like, this is what this is what elevates this up for me because we, we're still talking late 50s and it is just such a, a gruesome plot when you break it down as to what's actually going on that you've got body snatches, you've got somebody taking people's limbs for no reason at all apart from his own you know maniacal like devices you've you've got deformed like assistants you've got all of this sort of stuff going on and it's all in bright vivid color you know we, we were talking about Quatermass and x the unknown and all this like up to this sort of point up to dracula and, and the, the previous movie horror films were only filmed in black and white really weren't they they weren't yeah yeah or spectacles Curse of Frankenstein, I believe, is considered the first colour horror film, though you could argue there's some earlier films which are horror elements that do mm-hmm. are in colour. The first true horror, colour horror film was uh, Curse of Frankenstein, uh, which I think is why Hammer, because they did it well as well, Hammer got such a strong hold of the horror Took over the world. It was a you know, it was a well beater the way the Beatles and Dalek Mania and you know, yeah. Hammer and Car- well, not Carry On. Carry On was definitely UK and maybe Australia, but in terms of global Beatles and and Hammer, right? Yeah. <laughs> and James Bond. James Bond was the other one. Exactly. This whole period, you know, obviously the the Dalek Mania, the Beatles stuff was sort of sixty three, sixty four. Mm. this is all building up isn't it you've got this you've yeah, got, yeah. Like you say there's this whole thing where swinging 60s pretty much this is where it's building up into that bit where yeah well you could kind of see the influence because roger corman started doing basically his own version of hammer fairly early in the 60s because hammer was doing it so well uh corman yeah, took a different tack it was yeah. way, way less gore for example uh but they he found his own star in vincent price who was you know as you know, very effective. I wouldn't say as good as Cushy, but damn close, damn close. The Edgar Allan Poe stuff's a couple of years away, so we've got the uh, we've got the lead on this, haven't we? For a couple. Yeah, of years. yeah. Well, we were. It was everyone was copying it. The Italians were massively copying yeah. Hammer in in the early sixties with things like uh, Mask of Satan and things like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With Barbara Steele. As their yeah. Well, we spoke about the cast in in some sort of depth, but I think we need to take a look at the Village Hall of Fame to see who's actually there this week, and also the Crypt of Fame because now we're seven movies in, we're going to start seeing some familiar names being inducted and repeat performances. Get your keys out, Stephen. Let's see who we've got waiting for us, mate. Okay, Village Hall of Fame, Stephen, over to you, sir. Right, okay. Well, um, one uh, 
mention I want to make, which isn't a repeat appearance, but just uh, making his debut as the first appearance in any of the films that we uh, are doing, is Francis Matthews. Um, I just want to mention him because he's from York, uh, so which is where I am. He um, was born a couple of streets away from where Judy Dench came from. So, he's, it's he's, interesting he's that there must be um, certain places in Britain where a certain distinctive voice really lends itself to acting because Judy Dench has got a very distinctive um, sort of acting style and voice and Francis Matthews has too it's one of those things it's a bit like there's an area in Wales where people like Anthony Hopkins and Richard Burton came from right that's yeah. kind of got that really effective speaking voice and I think Francis Matthews carries very well i always remember him as uh, captain scarlet really yes absolutely that was the other thing i was going to mention about him but yeah oh, i mean he, he, <laughs> distinct no i just that was no you're absolutely right about it and he does have a distinctive voice and and who we call our judy um as well with her her distinctive voice but um and that doesn't uh, i am i'm obviously an example of that not applying to everybody from york um <laughs> but no absolutely and i think in this film he you know he's got a definite presence and isn't a bit part in any way he is genuinely a co-star and and, yeah. and carries some scenes on his own uh, separate to to cushion so hopefully we will be seeing more of him in in oh, future hopefully yeah definitely oh we do we so, do so um and then uh, we're on to people who are making their second appearance with regards to the village hall of fame who aren't quite in the door yet but they're they're on the doorstep we've got um alex gallier uh, who was in Curse of Frankenstein, Michael Gwynn, who was in Dunkirk, Eugene uh, Lee, um, who was in Curse of Frankenstein, Michael Mulcaster, Curse of Frankenstein, Julian Nelson, Private Progress, John Stewart, Quatermass 2, uh, Middleton Woods, what a name, uh, Curse of Frankenstein, and Richard Wordsworth, um, who was in Quatermass. So um, that's a few waiting in the wings to, to move up. Um, but we do actually have um, three people who are making their debut in the Hall of Fame. So uh, um, oh, we've already mentioned so one. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Eunice Grayson is uh, one of them because of previous appearance in uh, Doctor No and from Russia with Love. We've also got uh, George Woodbridge, uh, who was in Dracula and in Heavens Above. There we go. Yeah. So that's useful. Uh, uh, although we don't normally mention uh, many people who are off screen. We've got um, Jack Asher, who is the cinematographer, who um, is uh, fairly important, I think, with regards to Hammer particularly, uh, for his work. And certainly, every time you're watching a Hammer and it's his work, you can definitely see the quality of, of what he's done. So he was previously uh, Curse of Frankenstein and Dracula. Excellent. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, so him and Terence Fisher created this look then i always credit it to terence fisher but if jack asher was involved in those films he was definitely you know a significant uh, person that i didn't know about so that's kind of cool there was one actor that was in this that we uh, uh, sorry i get confused because i've watched so many harrow films recently i get confused on the back and forth but charles lloyd pack is in this as the uh, the stuffy president of the medical council and a few other kind of dickheads in that council were familiar faces too yeah. Charles Lloyd Peck must be the village hall he, he is yeah I've just remembered you mentioned Terence Fisher there he is actually the, the other third uh, appearance um, oh, okay. for us in, in this for getting in the um, the hall of fame um, mm. so 
Uh, yes, we'll come on to, to Charles Lloyd, Lloyd Pack. Um, he's um, he's uh, he'll be uh, getting in there with because he's certainly had more appearances. Um, there were four people uh, with their fourth appearance. Oh, um, sorry, we thought so, you finished. You carry oh, on. Yeah, this is. Oh, sorry, is that's what I said. No, no, that's fine. Now, Robert Brooks Turner was in Dan Buster's Seven Days to Noon and went the day well. Arnold Diamond was in Carry On Constable, Carry On Sergeant, and Dunkirk. Charles Gilliard was Doctor No Robbery, uh, Troubling Star. Lionel Jeffries, who we know well, uh, Amazing Mr. Blunden, Dunkirk, and Quatermass, and really he gets a, a double feature for for the amazing Mr. Blunden, doesn't he? But Anthony Nelson Keys, another great name, is uh, Abominable Snowman, Curse of Frankenstein and Dracula. So that's the people making their fourth appearance. There is uh, one person making their fifth appearance. Um, and that's Michael Ripper. Ripper, of course, the Ripper. The, the Ripper, yeah. <laughs> well, Prize of Arms, Quatermass 2, X the Unknown and Yield to the Night. He's, he's flying ahead now, isn't he? He is yeah. flying ahead, yeah, Close and we'll see. Yeah. We'll happily see more of him. There are three people making their six appearances. Wow. Cushing, surely. Cushing, yeah. Cushing, yeah. So I'll go through these. Yeah, um, right. Jimmy Charters, 10 Millington Place, Gideon's Day, Melody, uh, Passports, Pimlico, and The uh, Reckoning. Uh, Anthony Hines, uh, Curse of Frankenstein, Dracula, Quatermass, Quatermass 2, X the Unknown. John Welsh, Dunkirk, Old Rains, on Sunday, Lavender Hill Mob, The Man Who Never Was, and Room at the Top. And then two people making their seventh appearances. Um, the producer, Michael Carrera, oh. um, obviously, um, for Abominable Snowman, uh, Cash on Demand, Curse of Frankenstein, uh, Dracula, Quatermass, X the Unknown. Um, and then the aforementioned Peter Cushing, uh, Abominable Snowman, Cash on Demand, Curse of Frankenstein, Doctor Who, Dracula, Lolita, which we always forget he was in that, uh, credited at least, uh, and Violent Playground. And then we come to the people, two people making their eighth appearances. <laughs> uh, and this is where Roger Lloyd Pack, as he's mentioned, uh, bedazzled Roger Lloyd Pack, yeah. So uh, gets, um, sorry, Charles Lloyd Pack, yes. I don't know why I'm saying Roger twice, even Christian. Uh, Charles Laidprack, um, not his son. Bedazzled, Dracula, Last Holiday, Man Who Haunted Himself, Quatermass 2, uh, and Yield to the Night. And then George Spence, who was Ipcris Fowl, Lavender Hill, Mob, uh, Night to Remember. So finally, we've got somebody who is Night to Remember, because it's kind of the rule that somebody <laughs> has to have been in, <laughs> in Night to Remember. It's that um, Dunkirk, isn't it? It's that... So, uh, yeah. It's that Odin Kirk, yeah. Pool of London, One Good Turn, Seven Days to Noon, and Young and Innocent. And then we have one person making their ninth appearance. Acting? Or... Acting, yeah, Jack May. There, a lot of these must have been the hospital people, right? Because there was loads Some of, of them in there who were familiar. Some of them, Jack yeah. May, patient with eye patch, according to this. Oh, yeah. 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 So, which uh, recognised his face, actually. Yeah. So he was in Brief County, Gideon's Day, How I Won the War, Night to Remember, Pool of London, Prize of Arms, Seven Days to Noon, and Trouble in Star. And then we have two people making their temp appearances. Wow! Bloody <laughs> hell! Ernest Blythe. That's a name you, you recognise. Only from you. Uh, <laughs> Ten Millington Place, Carry On Teacher, From Wish You Love, Gideon's Day, Lavender Hill Mob, Man of the Moment, Night to Remember, Rocky Horror Show, Trouble in Star. And then the other one is John Tiff from 
um, who uh, is I spotted straight away uh, when I watched it and actually took it back because um, I thought it was somebody else because I recognised the face and I realised it was him. When there is Frankenstein is in his surgery, not the poor hospital, but his actual surgery for the rich people, and he has a, a butler that lets people in, and it's he's play he plays the manservant, the butler that opens the door and lets people people in, and um, so that's his 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 little bit part in this. He doesn't have a speaking part, but I recognise his face, um, and you probably if you look him up, you recognise his face from other things as well. He was Ten Rillington Place, Bunny Lake is missing, uh, Guns of Navarone, Night to Remember, Police, uh, The Rebel, The Reckoning, Sweeney, exclamation mark, uh, and Violent Playground. Little footnote <laughs> on that chap. He appeared in Night to Remember, yeah? Also appeared as a passenger in SOS Titanic. Whoa! So he, he, he carved a little, very small niche in Titanic movies. <laughs> I don't remember a movie called SOS. Was that Raise the Titanic or was it different? No, one? it was a TV one, I think. Oh, a, okay. Like, right. series type thing. Well, at least it didn't sink his career, did it? <laughs> God, he's another one I think we've got to keep an eye out there because if that's 10 appearances, he's up there with the, with the big guns, isn't he? The, uh, the Harringtons and stuff. It's, yeah, the royalty. Wow, there's lots of stuff. Yeah, I mean, this is it. The the You're now having to get into double figures to be within the, the top 10, really, because um, we've reached that that magnitude that if you've got nine appearances, you're not cutting it, you know? No, not so that. That's how, how oh, I, I suspect once we got to the end of this, Terence Fisher will be up there, actually. <laughs> it'll over, it'll so, overtake everyone, but we'll see. By the time we finished all the hammers, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this, yes, cause just the, uh, uh, Ter- Terence Fisher just knocked them out. I mean, the, I think this film we're talking about, um, they started filming... Let me get this right. I think they started filming three days after wrapping Horror Dracula, I think. Mm. Or maybe not Horror yeah. Dracula. They start, started straight onto this. Uh, it's three days break. Amazing. And, then, and, and a lot of the cast. Was in both. Very, yeah, a lot of the cast. Yeah, yeah okay. after the weekend off and then come back. Just put an eye patch on and lay in that bed and pretend to be a hospital patient. There you go. That's interesting. Right, I'll tell you what we'll do then because obviously this being a hammer film, we've got a separate Hall of Fame which is the Crypt of Fame. And this is really picking up a pace now. So, Stephen, open the ledger, my friend, and let's have a look what we got in there. Right. Well, uh, as far as uh, second appearances for the, the Hammer, I won't go through what films they've been in because uh, we've known each at this level, but uh, the aforementioned Alex Gollier, Lionel Jeffries, Eugene Leahy, Michael Mulcaster... John Stewart, George Woodbridge, Middleton Woods, and Richard Wordsworth. But as far as making their actual appearance, getting fully into the crypt by three appearances, uh, we've got three people. Jack Asher is obviously one of them, the cinematographer. Terence Fisher, as director, uh, is, is getting in um, as well. And then the third one um, is Michael Ripper for Quatermass oh, 2 and X the Unknown. So the Ripper has, has got in there, really. Took yes. him seven movies, but he, he's in there now. He, he got there, yeah. So, I mean, Peter Cushing got in there a bit earlier because he's on. He's one of two people making their fourth appearance with regards to this time around. So Peter Cushing was previously a abominable snowman, Dracula and Curse of Frankenstein. And obviously we've got Jimmy Sangster getting the correct mention, honourably, for Curse of Frankenstein, Dracula and X of the Unknown. And then two people, six appearances. Milka Carreras, obviously, with as a producer who's done most of them so far. Abominable Snowman, Curse of Frankenstein, Dracula, X, uh, Quatermass, 
uh, and next to the unknown and then also Anthony Hines' producer was uh, Curse of Frankenstein, Dracula, Quatermass, Quatermass 2 and X the unknown so um, that's the full lot of, uh, just, of people coming just in. Just so you know Anthony Hines is a, a tricky one because I believe he used to screenwrite under the name John Elder as well ah. <laughs> but I think most of the films he did that for it was also the producer Anthony Hines so you know I think you're alright but it's a bit weird. I don't know why you used a different name for the writing stuff. As if your job wasn't complicated enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alias is... I was going to say, I'd, you know, if, if he was still around, I'd be going and having words uh, with one of the two gentlemen in question. He could have made it easier for you, like Peter Cushing, and called himself like Dr. Frank or Dr. Yeah. Frank. You know, he could have just changed it slightly to live a completely different name. Well, yeah, he could have just called himself Heinz Anthony, couldn't he? Well, that yeah, dude, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Anthony. <laughs> We're really picking up speed with this now. It didn't take long, did it? Because the first, obviously, the first three, we were waiting for people to be inducted. Yeah, yeah. Interesting as well, we haven't really mentioned it, but there's no George Bernard doing the score for this one. So he hasn't made an appearance at all in this. Yeah, James yeah, Bernard which, often, they, they kind of riff on it, but they he does occasionally switch in other ones, often on second unit stuff, but I don't believe this was considered a second unit film at all. Um, mm. And it may be, you know, he was busy. Might have been the quick turnaround. Did you it, the quick turnaround. Yeah, you can't write a story or, or it in might have, three days. Or, it might have just been because he knew it was going to screw up somebody's bingo card. <laughs> oh, oh, I mean, by the way, I think I just referred to him as George Bernard. Didn't I? I'm not too sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, him, him and Roger are you Lowe's sure? Together, are you yeah. sure? That's a, that's a, that is a class pun. Oh, he's been waiting seven episodes to get. <laughs> Are you George Bernard Shaw? Yeah. yeah. Well, talking of bingo cards, the highlight of the show. Here we go. Some people, some very, <laughs> some very strange people, is the highlight of the show. Bob's Full House of Horror. Ladies and gentlemen, this is our attempt to do bingo on the radio. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Who's stupid idea was this? I, I've, it's given me PTSD now, frankly. <laughs> I think Mark is taking this far too seriously. <laughs> you were not privy to the conversation we had before we turned the microphones off. We were divvying out the bingo cards and I gave Mark the wrong one. And he was getting all excited because he could see. It scored so well. <laughs> But when we gave him the correct card, I don't think he's given him as much points as he was hoping. Let me give you a rundown of the point situation as it is, just to just uh, to I can say it would be so bad if he wasn't already behind, yeah. <laughs> but though no, he's made a bit of ground, Stephen. I mean, you're in the lead with 21 points at the moment. I'm sort of five points behind on 16. And Mark, you're only a point behind on 15. You did pick up four points in the last um episode, same as Stephen. So you didn't make any ground on Stephen, but you jumped up two towards me. Now Hopefully, you've all got the correct card. Stephen's got card one, Mark's got two, and I've got three. Mm-hmm. Let's start with Stephen then with card one, mate. Are you ready? Have you got your card there? I am, yeah. Shout yeah. out, so, sir. Let's see what you've got. So, Pitchfork Villager. I don't really have that. There's some upset patients in the hospital, but they've got not got pitchforks. Even if they could be described as villagers, they, they aren't pitchforking. We'll have to leave that one. Uh, Michael Ripper, though. Yeah, yeah Michael, yeah, the beginning definitely. of this film, I get him in. So mm-hmm. that's a, 
a good point for me. Uh, Mad Scientist, I think that's a, an easy yeah, that's uh, a claim. Spooky Glow. Now, you could argue that the, the, there are some bits where there is uh, glowing in the laboratory. Uh, I think particularly when they're... Oh, there's definitely a glow the, when they're looking up at the creature, you know, when it when it's in the tank. Oh, yeah. And when they've got some of the... the the other equipment uh, hooked up to like brains in a, and things. So yeah, so hopefully that one's got through. Blood, blood red eyes is next, and and that's not a a win uh, at all. That one. Good blonde, bad brunette. We haven't got that. We've got quite a good brunette, but yep. we haven't got um, a a good blonde. So or even a, a bad blonde to to offset that. Himbo, no, we don't really have that either. Um, because I think we've got in uh, Dr. Hans Cleave, um, he's certainly not a himbo because he's intelligent uh, enough. I keep wanting <laughs> to say Hans Cleave Bunce Daisy. I don't know why. <laughs> it's just because you're a comic genius. That's my mark. It's just because you're a comic genius. And uh, finally on my card is Barbara Shelley. Um, and no, sadly. You know what? I'm, I'm thinking we need to, like, stretch this Barbara Shelley one because Barbara Shelley's not in that many hammer I think if anyone's got a Barbara Shelley role I'm, I'm giving you a point but I'm also arguing on for this so I'd say if you like Hazel Court or um, Valerie Gord or uh, Eunice Gayson turn up I think they're in there. We, were, we were talking about doing a, a fourth card weren't we like that oh, we were kind of turned to having with some different um, characters on it possibly but then can, yeah. perhaps when Barbara Shelley comes up that could be a two pointer or something because she's not in that many yeah yeah I, I agree because she's only in like three in all uh, mm-hmm. just because th- she's so Oh, you know, she's such a presence. You kind of think she's in a yeah. lot more, but she's not. She's only in a few. Yeah. You do realise that Mark will get the card number two every time she's in a film. Um, yeah. Then in that case, because that's the only card that doesn't have her on. He's, he'll also, get the, the unlucky card. <laughs> I do want to mention, Mark, you're not doing yourself any favours here because you argued for Spooky Glow there as well and gave Stephen a point. <laughs> Yeah, but I, the the reason is uh, when you told me that was my card, I thought Spooky Glow's assuring because of that. So it's like you got you got to be honest, right? I thought Barbara Shelley was on card two. Uh, is it not? She's on two as well. She's oh, on, she is. Yeah, she's on yeah. two as well. Yeah. Have I just given yeah. him two points? For... <laughs> I think maybe we we changed the Barbara Shelley um, to being you know the hammer. You know, classic hammer beauty. I that's one classic. of the um. This is an one, of, one of the one of the. Uh, it's a classic hammer. Yeah, one one of one of the yeah one of the the sort of five or six that are regarded as the 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 hammer girls, as it were. Yeah. Um, got, so maybe maybe change yeah. that. Ingrid Pitt, Jacqueline yeah. Pierce, uh, you know those types. Yes. Yeah. Not types. Sorry, Ingrid Pitt's quite a bit different from the ones I've been talking about, but you know <laughs> she's still a definite hammer babe. Yeah, something something like that. But we might make up this fourth card eventually and just have that as an extra right to do, yeah. bonus with some, some real random ones or some probably more mainstream ones on it. We'll have to have a think. Can't we? So three points by yeah. my reckoning, mate, on that, bringing it up to 24. Yeah. Okay, Mark, sorry you've got card number two for this yeah. one. Yeah, you actually did, show. <laughs> What's your first one, mate? Uh, spooky Coachman, nah, there's definitely not a Spooky no. Coachman. Though Ripper does appear in Coachman in lots of other films, yeah. not in this one. Yeah. 
Uh, Barbara Shelley, and I think I've already argued that point for Stephen, so I should get a point for that. Oh, are we are we saying Barbara? <laughs> oh well, no, I I thought we. Sorry, I thought you could because I was saying a type. She's a type, isn't she? If we didn't give it to Steve, don't give it to me. That's I fine. didn't give it to him. I was, right, was, right. was going to say you're a harsh judge. No, I'm just thinking when she does turn up, she could be worth two points. Yeah, yeah, well. yeah. So, okay, cool. a, a bonus. Yeah. Cool. Mystery monsters on mine. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, there's a mystery. Yeah, monster. yeah. <laughs> so it's in a big tank. Yeah. <laughs> now I've got bat on a string, right? Okay, no bats on strings, and uh, you know, I do love a bat on a string. Hammer mm. uh, actually took the art form back about 30 years with their bat on a string. They were worse than the Universal bat. <laughs> so amazing. But there is eyes on a stick, and there's a hand in a tank. i'm I'm thinking just to to let him have the point because he's arguing this so well i think eyes on a stick compared to bat on a string is so far apart but let him have it for for trying i i I think he gets a point for effort how about we yeah because bat on a string could refer to any sort of like tacky terrible special effect how about that yeah yeah, that seems right. I'm giving him the points, Steve. I'll make an executive decision, sir. On that okay. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Keeps him quiet at the end of it. Uh, <laughs> James Bernard is my next one. He's not on it. Uh, Again, it's consolation for that because it's the only one that James Bernard has not appeared in. Yeah, yeah. It's, I can't believe that. Uh, himbo. No, there's no himbos. Really. Uh, Inventive crucifix. No, that isn't there. Though I like the idea of inventive use of something there isn't any of that in this film but i like that as a sort of more broader concept and then finally transform terror yeah we definitely get a dwarf turning into a uh, <laughs> into lord uh, melbury into lord melbury and then yeah. back back again eventually uh yeah so there is that yeah so. once again mate you've got the same points as steve oh you? well i you've got three so that's 18 to okay four Oh, all you need for Scott is to go and you get two, and then you've you've That's sweet. You ready? Let's have a look. I haven't even looked at this card number three. Plunging cleavage. Nah, it's not. Nah. At the no. no? Okay. Very demure. Even and the and the scenes with the um, you know, with all the rich people listening, it was all very demure. There was no plunging cleavage. We don't get any of that until the okay. middle to late sixties. Anyway. We'll go. We definitely have the deformed assistant then. I'll have the point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Ripper. I've got Mr. Ripper as well. So that's another point. Uh, I'll say no for the next one, which is Thunder and Lightning. No, there wasn't any of that, was it? Unusually for for a Frankenstein, there is no use of of lightning, yeah. No. Yeah. I think Mark argued for Spooky Glow, so I'm going to have to take that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We've definitely said there's no good blonde bear brunette in this one. We've got yeah. Mystery Monster for a point. Yeah. Uh, but there's no James Bernard score. Mark, I'm sorry, mate. I've got four. You've so. done the best out of this. Why, why mm. did I argue this? <laughs> I don't know why I did that. Do yourself any favours. Um, You're your own worst enemy, aren't you, really? <laughs> yeah. So at the end of round seven of <laughs> Bob's Full House of Horror, Stephen is still in the lead on 24 I've gained yes. a little bit of ground. I'm now on 20. Mark your two points behind that on 18. So if we shuffle the cards round one more, Stephen, you get card three. I get card. Mark gets card one. I get card two next time. Uh, yeah. It's handle a bleed. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'll shuffle. 
no, no, dear listener, we are going to be doing Hound of the Baskervilles next. Let's talk about this now. The chances of any of this coming up, apart from Mystery Monster, is going to be very slim. We're not too sure if Michael Ripper's in it. We can't remember, can we? I think Spooky Glow might be there. Oh no, hold Spooky on. Glow. Do I? Not, I'll, I'll get that one. Yeah, yeah right. Spooky Glow, Spooky Glow, Mystery Monster. I might be able to get two out of that it. for me. That, I'm not sure about James Bernard either. Um, I think yeah. he scores it, uh, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. We might get blood red eyes with the dog or something. Who knows? We'll wait and see when we get to that next time. Brilliant. So that's Bob's Full House of Horror, Crypt of Fame and the Hall of Fame. Wow. Gents, final thoughts on this. I mean, I'm very impressed with this as something that when I went into this a couple of nights ago, I just put as a secondary hammer, a bit of a quickie quota type, you know, quote a quickie type movie that they've just knocked out on the quiet. Uh, I was really impressed with the performances of everybody involved, the special effects, the plot, I think was great for 1958. And it's not saying necessarily top tier hammer, but it's certainly gone up in my estimation watching it this time around. Yeah, I think this is a good one. And I think if they, Michael Grid had been the Frankenstein in the first one, playing this kind of Ooh, uh, yeah. Mo- monster, sorry, fr- yeah, monster, he'd be remembered for it. It's yeah. weird how no one really remembers his performance in this. And yeah. I did sort of mention earlier, I saw this fairly young, and there's two, possibly three, really effective scenes that are very mm. memorable. The one is where we see him start to drool. Oh my goodness! Mm. I can't remember anything so visceral in a horror film. Seeing it that early, you know, it's a super visceral sort of thing that, like, oh man, he's become this kind of weird cannibal. And it's weird. It's never that explicit, but I assume the beating he takes is what creates this this uh, you know anomaly that Mm. makes him become this. It may be not. Maybe not. The other really striking scene that when i was young was when he finds his own body and throws it in a furnace there was something that really freaked me out as a kid when i saw that it's like wow he's kind of destroying himself completely so there's no going back not that he wants to go back but it's Mm. just such a a weird visceral odd scene right Mm. and the beating that frankenstein takes at the end i remember quite distinctly as a kid it felt like really horrible watching it now it doesn't look quite as bad as i remember it but i remember it being god he's almost ripped to pieces and i think as a kid i was um france um oh what's his hands cleave bumps the daisy uses that (laughs) phrase at the end and that kind of stuck in with mind as a kid right <laughs> totally undercut my old my yeah. own seriousness there um, <laughs> um so i think those scenes really stick in mind and michael green gives a great performance here as the demented sort of pathetic monster i think this is the kind of performance is how we see a frankenstein appear in a lot of future films as well i'm thinking of frankenstein the true story michael oh, zarazin's turn yeah absolutely. um yeah. And Robert De Niro's in Kenneth Branagh's version. Um, the, you know, there's various versions of Frankenstein that kind of become this pathetic, wretched sort of creature. And <laughs> and this is the. I mean, Christopher Lee was kind of that, but this this man is much more human and you're sympathetic kind of character, and you feel really bad for him. Frank, you know, Frankenstein, help me, you know, and all that. Um, you know, he's drooling. Uh, you know, and every minute we see him, he looks worse and worse. That's it's almost Victor Carrington-esque, isn't it, really? Quite a mess experiment. The Michael Sarazin one came to mind immediately when I saw the scene 
where he stumbles into the party and says Dr. Frankenstein, because there's that scene in the Michael Sarazin version where he goes in and rips um, is it Jane Seymour's head off or whatever it is in, in that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That instantly reminded me of that. The makeup after Cushing has been beaten, the makeup on his face is excellent. We spoke about the makeup earlier. The only thing that let the the, the beating scene down that, that Cushing gets, how shredded was his clothes? It was it's incredible. His, his shirt is like torn into a thousand pieces. Yeah, yeah. It's ripped. Over the top. But absolutely agree with all what you said there. Stephen. As you say, I was, uh, I was pleasantly surprised because I had underrated it in my own mind, just um, as being, uh, like you said, a, a quickie sequel. Uh, when it's got a lot more to it than that, it, okay, it was quick, uh, but it certainly wasn't cheap and certainly wasn't undeveloped yes i you know i might like to have seen a bit more developed with regards to the the heroine being because i don't feel she was used as much as she could have been but there's other bits in this where they've clearly foreshadowed uh bits of the plot with uh, earlier um, small mentions of things and so it's it's not done without any thought it's actually is well developed in that way and and you know to some extent um it's helped by uh you know watching again in some respects in, in that way and this time you know it's nice to see that they did actually intentionally leave it open for a sequel where so they're not gonna have to retcon <laughs> or anything but no the performances are great and like mark said the the way in which the the you know the monster is put across as it were um and the the pathos that there is um throughout it where it's understanding that the the, the creature uh, the monster is is becoming more human than the previous version in uh in curse of frankenstein and that meaning that we've now got a you know a perfection that you'd expect a perfection of what he's doing from um dr frankenstein's work he should be doing a better job than he did the, the last time around but yeah i think that there's there's clearly development there, uh, which does bode well for, for you know, the franchise. Um, and all, all over, this isn't something that should be dismissed because it's a sequel and, and diminishing returns. It's a, It stands well um, to be watched as a follow-on. As, as Mark said earlier, compared to some of the other Frankenstein movies that follow, this is head and shoulders above some of those Mark, isn't it, mate? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, but there are some really good ones coming too. There's, there, we've not seen the end of quality when it comes to Hammer Frankenstein, that's for sure. Brilliant. Okay, guys, thank you for that. We'll take a quick break. We've already revealed what we're doing next time, but we're just going to remind you back in a second. Okay, guys, that was The Revenge of Frankenstein, even though there was no revenge, as Mark pointed out. We're moving rapidly forward. It's 1959, the first Hammer movie of 1959. We're including this. We, not necessarily a horror, but we're going to sort of cherry-pick a few of the, the non-horror notable Hammer movies, aren't we, guys? I think we wanted to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. is a class production. Terence Fisher... Um, uh, Peter, you know, it's just a, it's just 
brilliant atmosphere. You know, this is probably the best version of Hand of the Baskervilles on the film. Though the Rathbone one is really good too, so it's it's close. Um, but I, I'd, I'd I'd rate this very highly as uh, Sherlock Holmes. It's probably the first one I think of when I think of movie Sherlock Holmes. Uh, that one and Murder by Decree are my probably my two favourite Sherlock Holmes movies. Yeah. We're going to be doing Murder by Decree at some point. Actually. Okay, you could include me if you need another hand Absolutely. on that. Absolutely, absolutely, I do love yeah. that film. It's always baffled me that the Hand of the Baskervilles is the one that gets sort of covered the most because it's the one that Holmes is in the least, isn't it? Yeah, I just think it's a filmic story. It's it's a way more actiony, interesting. Takes him out of London than yeah. the others. Uh, the other f- novels I'm talking about. The, some of the short stories definitely take him out of London. And yes. uh, Looking forward to this one, Stephen. Absolutely, yeah. And like Mark says, I can I, I see that as been the reason why this one is the one that's covered most mm-hmm. for for film. Uh, because it does have that different dynamic to it to some of the other more urban uh, and domestic stories almost. No, I'm definitely looking after, looking forward to this because it does, um, you know, come into my mind regularly and I think, um, you know, I've seen it more times than I perhaps remember seeing it and it's, you know, again, another opportunity to, to see Cushing and, and Lee in the same film at an earlier point in their careers. Yeah, it's going to be one that I think between the three of us we've probably seen the most or one of the most times. I think this one's going to be very familiar to all three of us. So that's the Hand of the Baskervilles next time. All that leaves me to do is to say, Mark, everybody can listen to your other podcast at The Good, The yeah, Bad. Yeah, Good, The Bad and The Odd, where, you know, we cover all sorts of things. Uh, a lot of British cinema as well. You know, for example, we recently covered Hawk the Slayer. Uh, which was amazing. I'll fight anyone about that. I will fight anyone about that. Um, for example, I also uh, run um, at the, parallel to it an, a podcast called Anthologic, which is about anthology TV shows. Uh, which reminds me, the Hammer series I mentioned earlier was Journey to the Unknown. If anyone's interested, um, uh, from '68, I think. Um, uh, so I cover, you know. Uh, things like Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, and Odd and Ends uh, anthology TV. And you've been on them, you Scott, talking about um, Tales of the Unexpected. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that's me, the good, the bad. And they're all on the same feed, so you just need one feed the good, the bad, the odd. Look on your favourite podcatcher thing. That's me. Wonderful. Mark, Stephen, thank you guys. I will see you both in a couple of weeks' time. Take care. Bye bye. Take care. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you.
the British end up, sir. I'm sick of pains. 